Well, my name is Larry Neese, in case uh, you haven't met me before, and I was on the pastoral staff here at Grace Fellowship for a number of years. And uh, when I was, uh, when we were raising our family, Mary and I, our four kids, we had a, a family dog who we named Waldo. And Waldo loved to escape and explore the neighborhood. And we would look around at home and we would say, where's Waldo? That's right, where's Waldo? And so we realized that he was off again on one of his jaunts. And so we would scavenge the neighborhood looking for Waldo. And when we found him, I have to confess, I was not a happy camper. I did not have a lot of compassion and I would take that dog by the, dear Waldo, by the leash, <laughs> by, by the collar, and I would say, bad dog. Well, to be honest, what I said was, bad dog. And that dog, as only dogs can do with those big brown eyes, he would kind of look at you with that totally guilty look on his face. But I discovered that the statute of limitations on his repentance ran out in about a week. And he was off again uh, looking around for the neighbors. Well, and then, did you know that they invented back then this, this great thing for dog owners? It's called a retractable leash. So you put Waldo on the leash and you're, you're walking him down the street and he sees that squirrel and he's taken off for that squirrel and you know, but he doesn't. He has about 15 or 20 feet. And then, eh, you know, you, you, you stop him and you reel him back in and you bring him under control. Of course, if you have a 180-pound dog, you may not want to try that technique uh, of dog raising. But, you know, I've also learned that you can actually train a dog. And so the dog is, walks by your side, and he's obedient, and everyone is happy. Did you know that some people try to put God on a leash? In fact, in, in some ways, every one of us attempts to do this. We have our expectations, we have our limits, we have our, our design as to what God can do and can't do, should do or shouldn't do. And whenever God gets off that leash, whenever he breaks those boundaries, it irritates us, it aggravates us. And sometimes it can precipitate not only disappointment with God, maybe even mistrust of God, but also a spiritual crisis. Now, this is what happened to Richard. He was raised in a Christian home. He went to a Christian college. He was studying his Bible, studying theology, but his life was a debris field of hardship, a broken home, a broken health, a fiance who broke off the engagement, and an employer who fired him. And through all of these setbacks of life, his spiritual journey began to be shaken. 
And he began to question, how can God love me? How can God care for me if he permits these things to happen in my life? And in his own words, he describes the night in which he lost his faith. It seems silly now, but this is what I did. I picked up my Bible and a couple other Christian books, and I walked downstairs and out the back door. I shut the door softly behind me so as not to wake anyone. In the backyard was a brick barbecue grill. I piled the books on it, saturated them with lighter fluid, and struck a match. Bible verses and bits of theology curled and blackened and then broke off in tiny crumbs of ash and floated skyward. And my faith was going up in smoke with them. Now, by his own account, Richard simply could not live any longer with a God who did not meet his expectations of what a good God should do. And so he burned his Bible and he walked away from his faith. Now the scripture, mostly in the New Testament, you will find warnings about being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, by, by straying, by being deceived, by falling away from the living God. And why are those warnings there? It's because it's a very real danger. Just because we begin the road in the Christian walk in knowing the Savior and living for him doesn't mean that we won't have those difficult times, the times of spiritual crisis that may may even threaten us to walk away from it all. This morning, we are coming to Jonah chapter 4. It is the, the last in our series in this short book of Jonah. And here we encounter the prodigal prophet in the midst of a severe spiritual crisis. In fact, what we will see is that Jonah is seething with anger towards God. And he is so depressed that he is begging God to take his life. And when we trace Jonah's story down to its roots, we discover that one of the root causes is that he wanted to keep God on the leash. Now, in my study of the book of Jonah, these four chapters, I have given chapter titles to. See if you agree with these titles. In chapter one, he says, I won't go. In chapter 2, Jonah says, I will go. In chapter 3, he says, I'm here. And in chapter 4, he says, I'm sorry I came. So you probably know the story. In Jonah chapter 1, God commissions Jonah to go the 500-yard, a mile distance to the city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, in order to proclaim a warning of coming judgment upon this brutal nation. Jonah, suspecting how this was going to turn out, 
takes a beeline in the opposite direction, jumps a ship to sail the length of the Mediterranean Sea, but God chases them. God sends a storm. The sailors pick up Jonah and they throw him into the sea to placate Job, jo, uh, uh, to placate the Lord. And Jonah, as he's descending into those waves, God sends a great fish to swallow Jonah. And that's chapter one. At the end of chapter one, we find Jonah in a most unique time out setting so that he could think things through. And when chapter two opens, Jonah is still there in that confined space, reconsidering the decisions that he made. And he decided that, well, maybe on second thought, I will go. Verse nine of Jonah chapter two. If you have your Bibles, you can track with us a little bit if you'd like. Jonah says, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. So that's the end of chapter 2. So in in chapter 3, Jonah essentially is saying, I'm here. And the here is the city of uh, of Nineveh. And our text tells us that it was a four-day walk just to get through the city. And as Jonah walks through the city, he delivers the shortest evangelistic message on record. Verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And when Jonah delivers this, maybe without passion, without illustrations, without embellishment, just... He just kind of mumbles this or he declares this. A shocking thing happens. A wonderful thing happens. The whole city of Nineveh, from the king down to the the least common denominator uh, on the hierarchy, they all repented. They all put on sackcloth. They all cried out to God, fearing this judgment that was coming And they ask God for mercy and for forgiveness and for salvation. And then that amazing thing happened. God responded. In fact, our text in chapter 3 and verse 10 says, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Now, for historical context, you need to know that he eventually did bring judgment. Right now, with Jonah's preaching and their repentance, God suspended judgment. He brought salvation. But 150 years later, through the prophet Nahum, the same message of judgment was delivered by the prophet to the Ninevites. This time, they did not repent, and the Medes and the Persians came in and wiped out the Ninevites, according to the judgment of God. But Jonah, when this happened, was not a happy camper. And when we come to the end of chapter 3, we could really almost close the book there. If there was no chapter 4, we would say, wow, this is an amazing 
But this is better, better than the Billy Graham crusade. This is just an astounding revival that took place in this very short message of coming judgment. We can close the book and say, wow, we have a lot to learn from that. But it's not over. This isn't the climax. The climax of the book, everything, this whole saga that we have been tracing, everything is now funneling down to what we are about to read in chapter four. And here we will discover some basic, fundamental, vital truths about the living God that will sustain us even in our day, even in times of our spiritual crisis. Chapter four and verse one. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. I mean, this is, a, this is an understatement. Uh, I like the way the message paraphrases this. It says, Jonah was furious, and he lost his temperature. It, temperature, well, he probably lost that too, but he lost his temper. Uh, another version flatly says, Jonah flew into a rage. Now, the Hebrew word for became angry, raha, means to kindle something to the burning point. It means to become hot. And so if you can picture Jonah, all of a sudden that flame, if you've ever experienced anger like that, this flame bursts up inside Jonah. And it is like Mount Vesuvius within him. Molten lava begins to flow. And we begin to hear it in what Jonah prays in verse 2. Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Now, I've got to read for you the, the message paraphrase. I, I, I like the impact of this. So bear with me as I read this same verse. The message uh, paraphrase says, Jonah yelled at God. God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew, now get this description. I knew that you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. Wow. If that's not an accurate description of God, I really don't know what is. And yet in the midst of that, what we find is that Jonah had bottled up this, this growing anger, unrest, dis-ease within him. This whole saga, it has been boiling and, and churning within him. And now it 
erupts this anger that he has at God. Now, anger does that, doesn't it? Now, I'm not advocating abuse of language, abuse of behavior, but sometimes in our humanity, at least for me, sometimes when that anger is kindled, it burges past the internal gates, the controls that I put on myself, and it, it just comes out, and I articulate, however in, uh, inaccurately or, uh, or inarticulately as, as I can, but it, it comes out, and I put on the table, spew it on the table, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I'm feeling. That's not a bad thing. In fact, I really think that that was God's whole purpose. He's, he's, he's cornering Jonah. He's, he's getting Jonah to finally come to the point where that which was in Jonah that God knew about all along suddenly just bursts out and he vomits it out onto the stage and he tells the people, or he tells the Lord what is going on inside him. Jonah was so angry that in the next verse, he prays this prayer. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me for death is better to me than life. This is a severe spiritual crisis for Jonah. Theologians nowadays describe such a time as this as the dark night of the soul. And that phrase is taken from a 16th century poem by the Spanish mystic St. John of the Cross in which in this poem he describes this journey of one who is losing their faith, who is trying to hold on to it, but it's just ebbing away, it's getting away from them, and it is a, a crisis of maximum proportions. And many have experienced this, this terror of the soul when your whole identity is up for grabs, when your understanding of who God is is now up for grabs, and you are in a spiritual and psychological freefall, not really knowing if or when or how it will end. That's what's going on in Jonah's life. That's what happened to Richard before he finally walked away from things. Jonah is in the dark night of his soul. Now, aren't you glad for, at times, for unanswered prayer? <laughs> because here Jonah is saying, I, I can't take it. Uh, it just, he's begging God, take my life, take my life, end my life. And, you know, one scenario could be God would say, hmm, I think I'll answer that prayer. <laughs> I've been chasing you all over. You continue to be rebellious. Deep down in your heart, you're confessing uh, to this thing in, in your life. 
this rebellion. And God could have just reached over and <laughs> ended Jonah's life like that. But he doesn't. He doesn't. And what we see in these next verses, to me, is the absolute climax of the whole saga of Jonah. And we learn about the heart of God. The same God, by the way, who is pursuing you. The same God that you live with. The same God that when you are distressed, when you are going through those tough times, when you are crying out why, when you are wondering, it's the same God. And how he treats Jonah is how he treats every one of us. You see, Jonah understood, to his credit, Jonah confessed where he was. He, 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 he confessed, finally, what was going on, even though it was theological schizophrenia. I mean, imagine this. Jonah is absolutely livid about the fact that God is so full of grace and love and mercy and kindness and so quick to forgive. See, God knew that something else was going on in this prophet. He didn't snuff out his life. And the Lord says in verse four, do you have good reason to be angry? Which by the way, is really an excellent question to ask ourselves or our spouse or our child to get at the root. What's going on here? What is it really that you're angry about? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it and he made a shelter for himself and he sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city, still hoping for judgment. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant, but God appointed a worm. And then dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. And when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint. And he begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. And as only the divine, wonderful counselor could do. God comes to Jonah and he asks them that question again in verse 9. Do you have good reason to be angry? And this time he has an object lesson. Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And I can just picture Jonah as he gives this response. He's gritting his teeth, and uh, he's saying, I have good reason to be angry. 
another good occasion to uh, end it all. But look how the Lord responds. I mean, this is absolutely amazing. The Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know the difference between their right hand or their left, as well as many animals? Probably referring to children, which makes the city of Nineveh 500 to 600,000 population. And God is saying to Jonah, you had compassion on the plant. Should I not have compassion on these souls? Can you, can you feel, do you sense with me the, the, the forcefulness of what God is saying? He doesn't pull anything back. He doesn't pull any punches. It's very accurate, very forceful, very direct, very truthful. And yet, in the midst of that is such a tenderness. The way I picture it is, is, is the Lord puts his arm around Jonah and says, Jonah, 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 Jonah. Let's think about this. You had compassion for the plant. That was a very real emotion that you had. Don't you think I should have compassion on these eternal souls and see them saved, forgiven of sin by my mercy? See, in those moments... The Lord God was saying to Jonah, lift your eyes above your myopic, small little world of self. With all of your cultural prejudices that you have built in where God should always be for Israel and always against the Assyrians. Lift your eyes above your small world of self to be able to see the global and the cosmic view of life that I have, a compassion upon all people. And as Peter would later write in 2 Peter, for God is not wanting for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is patient towards all. He wants everyone to come to repentance. Jonah, 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 Jonah. Who are your Ninevites? today. That individual or individuals who have left wounds 
on you, scars. A, a nightmare of a childhood, perhaps a, a betrayal, a woundedness, a former spouse who walked out who betrayed the vows. Or a group of people that all, all you see when you hear their name or see a photo, it, it, it triggers a, a revulsion. Larry, 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 Larry. Should I not have compassion on them as well as on you? You see, the, the thing that helps us, it's a good cure for the the foolishness of trying to put God on a leash is to contemplate the, the vastness, the majesty of who this God is that we are talking about. A good friend of mine here at Grace Fellowship uh, took some photographs that I want you to see, a photographs from his backyard. And if you live here in Johnson City or anywhere on planet Earth, you could, you could stand and take the same photographs and they are the photographs of three different galaxies. I was talking to him after the first service, and he said, you know, those galaxies are still there during the daytime, too. I never thought about that. <laughs> but here it is, nighttime, and his telescope, he's able to zero in, but they're up there all the time. These galaxies are representative. Astronomers tell us that there are billions of galaxies. And each of these galaxies has 250 million to 1 trillion stars in the galaxy. I mean, think about it who this God is. Think about the, the grandeur of God, but think not only of the, the vastness far beyond anything we could ask or think, but think also of the character of God that is so full of perfection that if there is anything in our thinking, anything in our self-portrait of God that indicates a flaw, that shows him unmerciful, that shows him uncaring, that shows him unloving, that shows him unjust. That is not the true God. That is, that's a caricature of God. That is not the true God because the true God is a God of perfection. You know why? Because he can't help himself. <laughs> that's who he is. Vast God. Perfect God. Let me just close with a, an experience I had several years ago. We were with some friends and we were hiking around Grandfather Mountain. Some of you have been there. And uh, they had been there before, so they were showing us the way. And our friend was leading the way, and we came to this, this place where it was kind of a, a huge boulders and kind of a cliffy area, and there were some ladders that were bolted into 
the side of the cliff on the boulder. And my memory says that they were kind of wooden, large wooden ladders. And so we were, we were climbing, started to climb up this. And his wife said to him, do you know what you're doing? I'm not going up there. Do you know what's up there? Do you know what we're doing? I'm not coming down that way. If we're going up there, I'm not coming down this way. And our friend said, trust me, it'll be okay. Follow me. Trust me. So we climbed up. I was the, the last one in case anyone fell. I thought that maybe I could catch them on the way down. And uh, we, we made our way up there and we got to the top and there is this spectacular 280 degree vista of the mountains and the hills all around us. And maybe more importantly, there was an easier path down on the other side. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me when you don't understand. Trust me when you don't like it. Trust me because of my character. Trust me because of my perfections. Follow me. Trust me. It's going to be okay. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for your loving kindness, a loving kindness that disrupts us at times, that moves in our, in our hearts in a way that beckons us into deeper levels of understanding. Uh, and we, we, we want that, Lord, and yet we avoid it. We, we, we don't want the struggle, the angst. We don't want the dark night of the soul. We don't want the disruptive things that, that break through our, our small box of who we think you should be and what we think you should do. But thank you, Lord, that in your tenderness as the wonderful counselor, you put your arm around us. You don't walk away from us. You, you counsel us. You, you draw us in. And you grow us on the inside. So, Lord, I pray for those who are struggling right now, those who are on the outside, those who maybe even walked away from their faith, those who are keeping you at arm's length. I pray that somehow the Spirit of God would awaken within them a knowledge of the one true God with your compassion. In Jesus' name, amen.